all of that time, two years, all of the money and all of the effort, it was quite frustrating to sit in these conferences and workshops and hear people talk about what I thought was just complete nonsense and, and being unable to persuade them as to what they were doing was nonsense. They'd look at me and it was sort of, you're the typical Marine infantryman. You're not too bright. So we'll talk a little slower and explain our ideas. And eventually you'll grasp when you'll understand what, what it's all about. And underneath I'm saying, I don't think so. Most of them were not professionally schooled. They hadn't read the basic books, the seminal works that needed to be read in terms of both the military, science, the literary works. They were so narrowly focused, they couldn't grasp what the real problem was. What were they reading then? I don't think they were reading anything. <laughs> except anything having to do with systems. And I mean systems in a narrow sense of linear or what we call structurally complex systems. They didn't understand how the world worked. They were trying to make the world work as they wanted it to. And it was never going to happen. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Why bring a military general to the podcast? Isn't the U.S. military one of the greatest polluters on the planet? My goal on this podcast is to bring effective leadership to the environment and your life, because spreading facts, figures, doom, and gloom isn't doing it. Leadership is about people. Technology and innovation have historically increased pollution, and the trend continues today. Nearly everyone promoting technological solutions is unwittingly continuing the drive toward efficiency that created our environmental situation and continues to augment it. They miss that increasing efficiency doesn't necessarily lower total waste, and total waste is our problem. Efficiency has overall increased total waste. It didn't have to be that way, but that's the way it's been because we're not focusing on reduction. I invited Rip after reading about the Millennium Challenge, where in preparation for Desert Storm, the military invited him to come out of retirement to lead the what's called the Red Team, which was in this case a ragtag group to fight the Blue Team, which represented the full force of the 21st century U.S. military and their strategy using every advantage they could, technology, data, weaponry, size, intelligence, and so on. I wasn't there but it sounded like a setup, not a test to see if it would work, but something more like a cakewalk to showcase what they considered an unstoppable, invincible Titanic force. Titanic might be the best term because Rip and his team mopped up the floor with them. I'll put links in the text for write-ups on this historic David and Goliath exchange, but within a few hours, he sank most of their Navy and they called it off on the first day. You'll hear in this conversation why they miscalculated so much, what he calculated effectively, and how he saw things differently, and what worked. More importantly, I hope to focus you on the value of focusing on people, because our behavior is causing these problems. Our technology results from our behavior. If we focus on people, the technology will follow. If we focus on the technology, we're liable to keep doing what we've been doing for centuries. 
In our conversation, Rip shares the inside story you won't find in those accounts. I was riveted, and he built it up from talking about his beginnings as a lieutenant, learning strategy like von Clausewitz, U.S. military development since World War II in Vietnam, things like that. If the relevance to the environment isn't obvious, I'll clarify. Those who want to protect the Earth's ability to sustain wildlife and human society, we face an apparently unstoppable juggernaut. It's not carbon dioxide, plastic, mercury, but the beliefs and goals driving people to keep doing what they used to, eating all that meat, flying, having as many kids as they feel like, blaming others, buying SUVs, all that sort of thing. Everyone who says, well, that's just human nature, you can't change it. They're confusing that with following a system. Systems can change. Systems have changed. Growth wasn't always a goal for people or even Western society. Nor did people ship their garbage halfway around the world. Nor did it take centuries to decompose. Cultures that had to deal with their garbage learned to live sustainably on various island nations and various places in human history. So can we. We can learn from Rip's teamwork, his historical knowledge, vision, and his approach, and all the things that make up leadership and lead ourselves and humanity to overcome our Goliath the beliefs keeping us doing what got us here. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with General Paul Van Riper. How are you doing? Good morning. Doing well. Thank you. And now, uh, you keep signing as RIP. Is that is it okay to call you RIP? Certainly. Okay. I don't want to be too uh, familiar. This is our first time seeing each other face-to-face. Well, my mother disliked nicknames. I have a twin brother, so she named named us so you couldn't make nicknames. My full name is Paul Kent. And of course, what happens is friends quickly took the last name and came up with Rip, and that stuck. So uh, that's what everybody <laughs> knows me by. That's fine. Okay, thank you. And uh, you have an incredible background. You were in, I mean, a, a general. That alone would be enough, I think, to qualify you as a, as a leader. You've been in Vietnam, you've been in uh, the Middle East, in Asia, in Quantico. Uh, I wonder if you could give us a quick background, and then I really want to get into what we were just talking about before I hit record. I uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserve back in 1956. I stayed in the Reserve all the time I was going to college, and then upon graduation, I went to the Officer Candidate School of Quantico, was commissioned in 1963, and from 1963 until 1997, I was on active duty. I served in virtually every post and station the Marine Corps has. Uh, I was involved in a number of conflicts, uh, Vietnam twice, Desert Storm, uh, in, in Lebanon, uh, and in the Dominican Republic. I uh, advanced from a second lieutenant to a lieutenant general and had some really interesting assignments during that period. Uh, if, if I had set out to plan my career, I could not have designed it any better than it actually played out. The way you said you had some interesting, some part of it was interesting. Or any interesting stories? Uh, I'm full of stories. Uh, <laughs> a number of years ago, I was asked to uh, work on it with a team that was doing some uh, training and educating in industry. And I went to be interviewed, and I was talking about various theories of, of communications, decision-making. And I got home, and the, the gentleman who was running it called me and said, uh, they don't want you to come and talk about any of these theories. They want you to come and tell the stories. I said, what stories? He said, well, you always illustrate your, <laughs> these theories with stories. They're more interested in the stories than they are the theories. So uh, they, they want to hire you to so come on and do that. So I tell people I got 
paid pretty handsomely for a while for just telling stories. It sounds. Uh, what's one of the more popular ones, if you don't mind my asking? Well, of course, Millennium Challenge was one everybody wanted to hear about. And then uh, they obviously want to hear about what you have learned, what the experience like was actually combat, what's it like to be under fire, uh, about places you've been in the world, where you visited. So um, um, almost every one of them had some unique aspect to it. If you're looking for particularly unusual ones, I served with the United Nations in the Truth Supervision Organization in Palestine. And we uh, worked between, at the time, the Egyptian and the Israelis. And then uh, the latter half of my tour, I worked between the PLO and the uh, Israelis. And that was really interesting to spend one week with them in a PLO camp, and then the next week be back down in, in Israel. And, um, of course, uh, Desert Storm was a unique experience. As um, My time as an advisor in Vietnam with the Vietnamese Marine Corps, where there were only two Americans with over 750 Vietnamese, and we were uh, acting as advisors to those units. So a whole, whole host of, of interesting stories. Well, I can't imagine. I mean, the access, the things that you've seen, most people can't even, it's not, I don't know if it's something they're drew about, but it's, I, I, I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm thinking of going back and forth between Egypt and Israel and the PLO, the different forces at play, the different people, the different, I mean, the, the global perspectives, it must've been like shocking to go from one to the next of how they would view the world or history or what would come next. Absolutely. Uh, and of course, from the PLO side, most of what we hear are there is their propaganda. What I would hear is their understanding of history, which put a whole different perspective on what was going on. And then to come back in Desert Storm, I mean, I, I guess it's not really the same place. It's kind of, I mean, from us, it seems like similar. Did your time in Israel, PLO, Lebanon inform your time in Desert Storm, or was it so different that it was as if you were in a totally different place? But, yes, but every tour that I had informed succeeding ones. It's sort of your, your building on your experience. And, of course, the more experience you have, the more likelihood you are to recognize whatever pattern. And I use the pattern in terms of a sequence of events. Uh, it could actually be an audio pattern uh, or it could be a visual pattern. So your, your mind's being informed because you've seen pieces of this pattern puzzle before. And the more experience you have, the easier it is to fill in. Now you've got to be careful you don't have some bias that causes you to think about it incorrectly. But for the most part, uh, the more experience I had, the easier it became to be in a leadership position. It's almost leading into my, I, I really want to ask about the Millennium Challenge, but I want to build up to that because, well, when we first started talking before I hit record, you talked, you said that you were in retirement, you were looking forward to reading military history, I think military history of the Napoleonic Wars, and you haven't been able to get to that. And I mentioned how I'd been meaning to get to von Clausewitz since strategy class in business school. And you started talking about the different, am I correct that that's the first book on strategy and of any sort? I mean, it was military strategy, but strategy now applies to a lot of different areas. Did he, did von Clausewitz start it? No, um, there was great interest in uh, strategies. In fact, strategy as as a word comes from the Greek, and it refers to the decisions of a general. And strategy actually in Clausewitz's time would be what we call operational art, or how you design large military campaigns. So as an illustration, how you might design a campaign in the Pacific during World War II. That's the level at which he was 
was writing. We think of strategy. We think, how do you put multiple campaigns together to win a war? Uh, so it's, it's uh, higher. And of course, strategy, its loss is real meaning. I've looked at, uh, seen videos and TV where a person will say, I've got a strategy for my Christmas shopping. Uh, <laughs> we talk about strategy in sports. But the strategy I'm talking about is high-order decision-making in a military environment, uh, which is different than what I would call the strategy we think of in terms of executive leadership. That, that's different. So it, it's, a, in that sense, a narrow field, though obviously there are parts of it that apply to other fields. I was wondering about that. The, how much of it does learning military strategy, how applicable do you find that to other areas, in particular well, business, but also I think of, I mean, leadership in the environment is a big thing for me. And I feel like the environment is big. I don't think, I don't, I don't feel like people are applying strategy to it, but I'm not sure if, if that's applicable and is learning military strategy useful for applying in other areas. Certain aspects of it are, I think, in terms of understanding the world we live in from a, a different perspective than most of us are educated to is valuable understanding how you make decisions under stress, certainly valuable. But when you get into what I would say are the more mechanistic aspects of it, what sort of a formation would you use in this particular operation? That's obviously of very little utility, but it's the high order uh, theories that have a crossover. And you were talking about, when I mentioned reading von Clausewitz on war, you you said to read it, it's it's not something you can just straight through read. And how, how would you rec- recommend reading it? I would recommend, uh, if you are able to, find someone who's a student of Clausewitz and can introduce you. You almost need a mentor as you read it who's explaining it. And in many ways, well, it is an unfinished work. He passed away before he completed it, was in the process of revising the whole thing. So that's the, the first difficulty. You're going to find... Uh, variations between portions of the book because he was he never completed it. And I'm unsure if he ever would have completed it because in many ways, it was how he was thinking. He would think and write, which reminds me of a saying I saw years ago, if you haven't written about something, you haven't truly thought about it. So I believe he was using the, the actual writing as an outlet for his evolving thinking and the more experience he had, the more history he read, the deeper he got into it, caused him to revise it. But uh, there's a lot of problems. The unfinished nature of it, the fact that he uses a, uh, not for that time, but for us, an unusual way of, of reasoning where he gets two polar opposites and argues for both of them, looking for the tension between the two. Most readers are looking, okay, which one do you mean? Do you mean left or right? No, he doesn't. He means between left and right, and that tension is exists all the time. So you have to understand that before you actually delve into the material itself. If you that means you learned it from at least one mentor, maybe more. Does that mean there's been a line of un, an unbroken line of mentors of, of students of von Clausewitz? No, and that's the reason we got into such difficulty in Vietnam after World War II. There was a thinking that permeated all of our national security apparatus, and certainly uh, those in uniform, that atomic and the nuclear weapons had uh, wiped the, the slate clean in terms of any lessons or value in studying history or studying theory. So 
to my generation coming back from Vietnam, Clausewitz was unknown. Um, most of our instruction was actually systematic. We were being taught things that uh, then uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Robert McNamara, was was putting out. Um, turned out that none of that worked in Vietnam. And we'd walked away from history as being the school of the soldier as to something that was unneeded, all untrue. And so post-Vietnam, starting with the U.S. Army, then evolving into the U.S. Marine Corps, there was an intellectual renaissance where young officers, uh, largely of my generation, said, what happened? The, the tactics and techniques we were taught worked. But what we what we're being part of it in terms of larger campaigns and the war itself were confusing and, and nothing seemed to work. And so we struggled. There were folks who um, had uh, continued to study and knew about this. And I'm one I would mention as a retired Air Force colonel uh, at the time of the name of John Boyd, uh, since passed away, who uh, uh, introduced us to some of this. There was a president of the Naval War College who reintroduced the study of Clausewitz, and over the years that permeated through all of the um, armed forces as war college. So it was about a 10-year effort to get back to the basics of theory upon which to build doctrine. So was the what I heard was that there was a renaissance that followed people wiping the slate clean. Were the people wiping the slate clean, they weren't intending to lose track of something that I presume that it was innocent, like they thought the things really did change, and in, in some ways they did. Like they were trying to mess things up, I take it. No, no. no. It's, in fact, if, are you familiar with Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolution? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, we know what he puts out in, in simple terms is there's an existing paradigm, uh, and that paradigm consists of the received wisdom from those who studied in that field. And, of course, what happens in what our institution is proselytizing these ideas, uh, they, they teach it to a younger generation who goes out and experiences it, and as he said, practices normal science. And as long as that science holds up, uh, this continues. But in almost every field, there are aberrations where the things you've learned don't work. And if these aberrations reach a certain point, the whole theory becomes starts to come apart. Generally, the older folks who are in this line of work, whatever the profession, they try to defend it, uh, where the young folks have other ideas. And to the degree those ideas have merit and seem to answer whatever the, the questions are in a better fashion, then a new paradigm comes and we have the so-called paradigm shift. So if you apply that to what took place, we went into Vietnam with a paradigm that had worked for m- many years. Uh, seemed to the older generation to be working, didn't for us. And so then new ideas began to emerge, everything from discussions at a bar to actual work groups that sat down to try to figure this out. And over time, uh, the ideas that, uh, in the case of the, the larger joint military community, began to be known as air land battle. In the case of the Marine Corps, it was known as maneuver warfare. These ideas emerged and produced... Um, Written doctrine. And were you you were part of that? I take it. Yes. And were, were you actively saying we must do something new, or were you just kind of caught up with the flow? We were disillusioned with what had happened, and many uh, military personnel left because, on top of the disillusionment with this uh, basic 
a misunderstanding of a theory of war, uh, an understanding of how you would put together operations and then fight. Uh, it just wasn't, there was no underpinning. On top of that, you had all of the problems with race riots, the addictions to drugs that was sweeping throughout the military, uh, the gender issues. So you're trying to solve these social problems. At the same time, the very fundamentals of the profession have cracked, and you're trying to not not fix the cracks in the case of the younger generations, but build a new foundation. And how how do you feel? Did you succeed? I mean, I think the proof of success was Desert Storm, and also um, uh, the, the parts of Iraq uh, prior to it turning into an insurgency. So you're, that's 1990, 1991, right? Mm-hmm. So between 1991, so that was successful. I have to mention my roommate in college, one of my best friends and most longstanding friends, came served there in the Marines, uh, possibly under you. And we actually ended up starting a company together. Uh, but that's a while ago. So then it's hard not to think of 2003 as being something different than 1991. Yes. And where the theory began to break down was when we went, and you can put a lot of terms on it, let's just say regular war as opposed to irregular, uh, that is insurgency. Because as this thinking was going on, the popular wisdom of the time, the common idea was no more Vietnams. That is, no more insurgencies. So the theory really didn't cover insurgencies because the thinking was, we'll never get involved in this again. We got burned once. It's not going to happen again. Our wars will be what would be viewed as regular conventional if there is such a thing normal. And so the the doctrine was written largely with that idea in mind and, and written to counter the Soviets. It reminds me of a scene in, it wasn't a movie. It was like a TV series that was on um, a portrayal of Johnson heading into Vietnam. And it was a scene with Ball. I forget his name. Uh, his last name was Ball. He was in a, a civilian in the White House. And he said, what makes you think that they're going to fight the way we want them to fight? That's exactly what happened. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't what was expected. What the military leadership going into Vietnam, their experience, of course, had been Korea and had been World War II. And even though there were insurgencies throughout those wars, uh, we sometimes forget about what happened in the Philippines or what happened in the Soviet Union when the Germans invaded. There were insurgencies. For the most part, they were wars of fire maneuver where One side is trying to gain an advantage in its position, uh, its relationship to both the enemy and to the terrain. That's what they, that's what they saw as war. And those wars, you fight uh, against another military unit to the degree there's a population around you. It's generally uh, either ignored or can become a nuisance to, to you. Where in insurgency, you fight for the people and you fight through those people, a whole different approach. It's hard for me not to think while you're saying this, and I hope this isn't too big of a leap, but I feel like the environment is a very big issue for me. And it's something that when I look back, I'm not aware of any problem that we as humans have faced that's the, that's the same. And therefore, I don't see any past successes that we can use to apply here. I mean, some here and there, and that tells me you have to go back to the fundamentals of what works at the most basic level and figure out how they apply in a fundamentally new way, because, you know, it's a global thing. It's, you know, the effects are not felt for a long time. 
It's very intangible for most people. And if you simply take something that works, the most recent problem that was vaguely similar, it's probably not going to work that well. And so about going back to the basics, is that, is that a strategy that works? I mean, is that not a strategy, but I mean, is that a technique that works to develop a strategy? Is that what you have to do when you're in a new situation? But you have to have, no, no matter what field you're in, what profession, there needs to be a theoretical underpinning. Te- medicine has a theoretical underpinning. And without that theory, you can't build th- through to actually get down to the, the procedures that you want to use within that profession. So it's, it's not really a hierarchy, but it is um, that everything flows from that theory. And we went into Vietnam without a theory of war. Uh-huh thinking that if you won the battles, you'd win the war. It was cumulative. And there's a there's this famous story, which is true, that he, uh, there was a North Vietnamese general when uh, the first Americans went to bring out the uh, American POWs, that, uh, that a colonel, an army colonel, said to this uh, North Vietnamese general, you know, we won every battle. To the reply was, it didn't make any difference. We won the war, which is actually true. Uh, I wouldn't say we lost, we just didn't win uh, because we won the battles, but those battles were not arranged in such a manner that they would support a larger campaign, and that campaign wasn't based on a strategy that was uh, was viable. So we were building from the bottom when there, there was nothing to build to. So what you're saying now is now decades later, did you feel that way in the moment or even immediately afterward? No, because most of my experience was as a lieutenant and captain, and it was tactical in nature. It was face-to-face with the enemy. And uh, those sorts of things, we had a good uh, so-called toolkit. What what we had in terms of weapons and small unit tactics were pretty effective. It was trying to put that together in some meaningful way that it would lead to the U.S. uh, actually achieving its goals. And... So our frustration was that we had fought, we had sacrificed. Most of us um, saw a lot of casualties. And in the end, uh, it didn't produce the results that we had been promised it would. So the conclusions that you came to that you just described uh, a couple minutes ago, did that came through reflection and studying and interviewing, I presume, in the, in the decades afterward? Or did it come quickly? Is that, am I right in, in that how you came to the conclusions? It took some time. There were well, first of all, many of these basic problems. What I would classify under discipline, under uh, just small unit training, we had we had to resolve our problems that stem from the society at large. At that time, I mentioned earlier, drug, gender integration, uh, solving the, the racial problems, the racial inequalities, and then getting back to some good solid training, because uh, the, all of that had been disrupted by these social problems. So you had to solve those first before there was much deep thinking about what had happened. And it was into the 1970, late 1970s, before the first signs of this intellectual re- uh, revolution occurred. Some of the things you're talking about don't sound at all like what I think most people think of as what a military person would consider, would, would concern himself with. And I wonder if, is that part of what going from colonel to general and to four-star general, is it concerning yourself with these broad, broad things? Well, it's like any profession, except a profession that's perhaps hands-on. Uh, you begin, it's very practical and hands-on. 
And then as you move up in the profession, in the organization, you get broader responsibilities. And now you're interested in things that are more encompassing. And of course, if you reach a senior leadership position, you are interested in what what is the business strategy for this particular uh, industry? What, what do we think about the future? How are we going to prepare for it? And obviously, if you've grown up in the profession, you understand what's happening on the production line or in the sales force, but uh, you're you're not doing the same things. Now, I want to switch to the, to the Millennium Challenge, if that's okay. Sure. Okay, so you retired in 1997, and you didn't have to do anything, and people came to you and said, we'd like to involve you with this Millennium Challenge. Do you mind giving a, an overview of, of it? And sometimes I'm asking a question, why would they take these old retired generals and admirals to play these war games? Why don't the active duty senior leaders do it? Well, most of these war games are lengthy. In the case of Millennium Challenge, it actually was a series of exercises for more than two years, some of them um, a month or more in length. Well, to take an active duty officer to play a game like that where you're trying to learn is pretty expensive and takes them away from their normal pretty busy days. So it was, was and still is common practice. Okay, let's bring somebody who understands the profession of arms, but is not caught up in a in day-to-day uh, work. And so they'll um, contract with uh, retired officers to do that. Now, I was one of my uh, a number. They, had, they played different roles in that game. And so, so what happened? Uh, actually, what did they expect to happen? They, uh, this was a game to test a new concept, and that's what most games are for, war games, uh, unless, unless you're trying to hone your skills. If you're doing something in peacetime and you're not part of, a, of an operational unit, what does the games to hone its skills? Its skills in decision-making and actual maneuver, in, in uh, coordinating, organizing fires. Uh, but you're, you're trying to say, we, we envision this future what sort of an operating concept might uh, we need for the future? And so what then was the Joint Forces Command, which was responsible for developing doctrine for all of the military forces as they operate in unison, uh, what, was the, uh, what was, the, was the idea? And this was to test it. In my view, from the beginning, the idea was nonsense. It was pseudoscience. But I never could convince anybody in that. So I was involved as all of these discussions about what this new concept was going to be as they begin to flesh it out. And I think I was a thorn in their side all along saying you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. You, you don't understand the basics of what you're saying and you're building it on a, you're building it on a flawed uh, fundamental idea. And so when it came t- time to execute it, I, I knew what the flaws were and it was relatively simple. So were you, enthusiastic? I mean, uh, it's a big ordeal with lots of people and lots of taxpayer money. Were you enthusiastic about getting to say, look, you weren't listening to me and now I'm going to show you? Or were you... In in a a way, I would have much uh, rather than uh, all of that time, two years, all of the money and all of the effort. uh, It was quite frustrating to sit in these conferences and workshops and hear people talk about what I thought was just complete nonsense. And, and being unable to persuade them uh, as to what they were doing was nonsense. And it, they'd look at me and it was sort of, well, you're, you're the typical Marine infantryman. Uh, you're not too bright. And uh, so we'll talk a little slower and explain our ideas. And eventually you'll grasp when you'll understand what, what it's all about. 
underneath I'm saying, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> most of them were not professionally schooled. They hadn't read the basic books, the, the seminal works that needed to be read in terms of both the military, science, the literary works. They were so narrowly focused, they couldn't grasp um, what the real problem was. Were they reading then? I don't think they were reading anything very fast, <laughs> except, uh, uh, except uh, anything having to do with uh, systems. And I mean systems in a narrow sense of linear or what we call structurally complex systems. Uh, they, they didn't understand, as I said, they didn't understand how the world worked. They were trying to make the world work as they wanted it to. They, and it was never going to happen. And some of this stemmed from successes in Desert Storm. Uh, they'd seen systems analysis, all of Mr. McNamara in a different guise, work, work and work well in, in accomplishing certain missions. And so the conclusion was, wow, we did this very well. Let's just take this and scale it up to, and literally, to war itself. It wasn't scalable. When you mention systems, one of the first things I think of when I hear systems is I think complexity and I think nonlinear. And they were thinking linear systems. Yeah, you you have it. And of course, when you use the terms linear and nonlinear, one of the problems with the term nonlinear in the military at that time spoke to the geometry of the battlefield. And that was a popular term. What was meant was we'll no longer have front lines where an enemy is facing, facing an enemy. We're going to have fighting all over, more like an insurgency. And I would say, no, you're talking geometry. I'm talking physics, mathematics, that sort of linear. So they viewed the world as linear, and their successes were based on linear systems. For example, uh, very successful during Desert Storm in taking down the Iraqi power grid without destroying it. The old days before these new ideas going into uh, Iraq would have been bomb the generators, bomb the power plants, smash them. But we, in that time, we, we didn't want those destroyed because after the war, we wanted them up and functioning very well. And so the solution to that was to take uh, strips of carbon fiber and drop them from aircraft so they fell over top of power lines and shorted them out. And so you shorted out the power lines, but you didn't take the rest of the infrastructure. So <laughs> the the idea was, look, let's look for what sort of effect we want and see within this system what link or what node might achieve that effect without destroying the whole system. A brilliant idea. You could do it with an integrated air defense where you have a, an electrical power source, you have radars, you have missiles, you have all of these things, uh, communications and command and control in a linear system. And you decide which are the key nodes if we destroy them will cause the system to collapse. And that's exactly what happened the first night of the war. We took out the key nodes, the, the Iraqi air defense system collapsed, and our aircraft were able to virtually roam free. So these successes were then, uh, the attempt was, okay, we're going to look for the effect in the system. Therefore, we need to understand the system. And now we went from mechanical, structurally complex linear systems to, to nonlinear ones. So we started talking about 
Well, we, we know what to do to their economy. We know what we understand their political system. We understand their social systems. We understand war. And as I would say to them, no, every battle, every campaign, every war <clears throat> is a nonlinear phenomenon. Clausewitz told us that. He didn't use those terms, but that's what he understood in, inherently. So your tools are not going to work. You have to approach these holistically because in the very act of tearing these systems apart, as you understand them, they lose any meaning. And you compare them to biological, ecological systems. And as simple as that was, I thought to grasp, they, that being the folks at the Joint Forces Command, pushing this idea of effects-based operations, couldn't seem to grasp it. So this is all groundwork for what set up these games. I'm sure it's barely scratching the surface. But I wonder if you can end, how did you prepare for it? And what did you, what did you expect would happen? And is, did it happen exactly as you expected? Yes. Well, first of all, most war games, the enemy side, the so-called red side, doesn't necessarily get the best, uh, the best people. You get either the junior people, those with less experience, or in some cases, folks that the, the other side doesn't want. That was not the case here. I had a, a really well-schooled professional team and in sufficient numbers that uh, we could plan adequately. And the first thing that I told them was, we are not going to buy into any of this effects-based operations nonsense. We're going to operate with mission-type orders, and that means we're we're going to talk about what is it we want to achieve, what is our intent, and then how do we go about achieving that intent, intent without being prescriptive. It's simply a goal, and then you allow the organization, in a real sense, to self-organize to, to accomplish that. Now, it's not free form in the, when I say self-organize, because obviously you, you're uh, constrained by certain organizations that you have, certain weapon systems. But in terms of the decision-making, you, you allow a, a self-organization. Uh, and that, first of all, means that though there's a hierarchy for making the decisions, uh, what you're really interested in are the merit of the ideas. So if a junior person has a great idea, you're more concerned about listening to that idea, hearing him or her defend it. And then if it's it's worthwhile and it's defensible, you adopt the idea. It doesn't have to come from the general or the admiral. It could come from some young lieutenant or captain. I don't know too much about the Marines, but I feel like that's how the Marines work, is that it's, yes. once the people are out there, they're the ones making the decision. And now we... The, the leadership, the higher ranking people are there to support what happens in the field because they are there. Yes. Where the, the old model, you look at World War II, was, it was run more like a machine where nothing happened unless somebody pulled the right lever through the right switch. And that's not, not the actuality. And there are many examples. One of the simplest one, maybe you want to keep an, an enemy from, uh, you want to cross a river. So you want to seize a bridge to cross this river. And the unit that approaches finds the bridges just uh, has almost impregnable defense and it's going to be very costly to seize it but in the in the reconnaissance they discover a ford across the river so they take the ford they don't seize the bridge they they capture the ford which is lightly defended and you accomplish the same purpose that is cross the river so you're looking for what is the purpose now you can if you don't understand the purpose you can make mistakes Let's suppose that... Uh, Did you say if you don't understand the purpose or you do understand the purpose? If, if you don't understand okay. it, you can, you can make mistakes. So if you understand it, it's much more likely you're going to achieve the goal at less cost. 
if you don't understand it, you can make mistakes that impinge on uh, succeeding operations. So let's suppose I tell you as a commander, I want you to seize this airfield. So you say it's an airborne unit or so you parachute in and you're successful in, in seizing it. And in the process, you destroyed the control tower because I failed to tell you that I wanted the airfield for follow-on forces, forces that I wanted to fly in later. But or you, you may blow up parts of the runway. If I'd have told you, I want you to seize that airport in, in order uh, that we can have follow-on forces. Now, now how you do it changes. So it's, uh, it, it's key to understand the, the purpose is far more important than the task. So when I asked you about what happened, the first thing you said was you talked about the skills and experiences of the people that you had with you. And I feel like it's a people-first way of operating. Of course, you have to have your vision and communication, but I think I'm contrasting it with them where there was a, um, I don't know how to describe the perspective that the people who came to with a challenge. It doesn't sound like it was people first. It sounds like it was, I don't want to say system, linear systems approach first. In, in, in a sense, it's people first. Let me tell you, this kind of the, the porridge too hot, too cold, or just right. Uh, my experience is three types of military leaders. There's the one who walks in and says, ladies and gentlemen, here's the problem. Here's how we're going to do it. Sir, did you ever think about, hey, if I wanted to hear from you, I'd, I'd call on you. Shut up. Nobody ever contributes. Then they respond. My experience, those are generally the weakest leaders. And the reason they're operating like that, because they are not soundly schooled and they, or don't have the experience and they don't want to expose it. So they, they're very directive and they don't want any input from anyone else. Let's go to the other end. This is the leader walks in and says, ladies and gentlemen, we got this particular problem. I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. And discourse starts. The problem is the discourse never really ends. And if you run out of time or you just dilly-dally around and don't get to finding a solution, the kind of leader you want who walks in and says, folks, this is, this is what we're facing. Uh, I need to hear your ideas. But that leader, he or she, understands how much time they have or at a certain point has got enough information, they know what they want to do. And so then they cut it off and they make a decision to move forward. Those who had different ideas that weren't adopted had a fair chance to, for a hearing. So they're going to be supportive because they understand why they didn't, their, their idea didn't uh, make the cut. And of course, those who contributed are, are fully enthusiastic about it. And so th that's when I say it's people. You allow the people to contribute, but it's a, a disciplined discourse. It's not a, a fraternity bull session that never ends and is always reopened for, for further discussion. Does that mean when I read about the Millennium Challenge, I read about, you weren't, you, you were sending messages by, by um, motorcycle and you had swarms of boats going around doing different. I thought when I read it, you came up with all those things, but now I'm thinking you probably came up with strategy and involved the people and everyone came up with lots of different things. Oh, no, no, no. In fact, those are all techniques and, and they're, they're just, people just pick them out and use them because I guess they're make for interesting writing, but they're techniques that somebody else came up with within this broader this broader intent that I gave to them. They're not my ideas, but it, and it, it's cumulative. It's not any one of those that made the difference. It was the uh, all of them being added together and being applied at the right time at the right place. Is that what you brought in was the 
not the ideas, but the coordination so that thing so that people would work together well and the right ideas or the most effective ideas would bubble up and get selected to work together? I'm going to use this probably the, uh, the analogy stretch, but I, to me it has meaning. Uh, first, we're going to do a literature search. Many times what happens is you're given a problem and you get together and you try to come up with a solution. And I always say, no, time out. I don't want to hear any discussions about solving the problem. First, we need to understand the problem. And so that means we need to search literature. We need to talk to people. We need to get all the information we can to understand the problem and, and put some frame to it before we get into, into solutions. And we're a nation of problem solvers. So the first thing we want to do is get together, okay, Let's come up with three courses of action to solve this problem. No, no. What is the problem? First, what is the problem? Tell me what it is. Let's, let's worry that before we get into any solutions. It's like the old quote. They say Einstein said it, although I don't think he actually Absolutely, said it. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Was it 59 minutes to... Yeah, to understand uh, the problem. And one minute to execute the solution. Yeah. And then he says after that, if he's the one who said it, that uh, the solution is just a simple matter of applying technique it's understanding the problem is the really hard part. That's it. That's the key to it. And the other thing, the military, in a lot of places, make decision-making into this complex, systematic approach. And so there's all sorts of rules and there's uh, things you have, steps you have to go through. And it pretty soon it involves computer support and staffs and uh, there's routines and subroutines and subroutines to them. And I tell folks, no, no, that's not what decision-making is. Decision-making is understanding what the problem is and then telling yourself or as a corporate group, a staff, telling itself a story that's logical to make sense. So you're just trying to tell yourself, so I got this problem. If I do A, B, and C, I'm going to solve the problem or whatever it is. So you're putting together a story. Most of them get so concerned about the products of the procedures that they forget about the end. Uh, and what it does, it draws you into the, the actual procedures of process instead of focusing outward on the problem. They measure success by the by the products they're producing. Okay, we've we've come up with three courses of action. Okay, now we've examined these and and we're comparing them. It's a waste of time. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com/podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I want to share with you some views I have on the environment. I hope this doesn't feel like too big of a jolt, but I think most people look at the problem as we got too much carbon dioxide and methane and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We got too much plastic in the ocean. And so therefore, how do we do something about the carbon dioxide? How do we do something about the plastic? How do we do something about the mercury? And the more that I look at it, the more that it seems to me, carbon dioxide, methane, mercury, these are molecules that have no volition of their own. They're not a cause, they're an effect. And the cause is our behavior. We're doing things. I mean, before humans, this stuff I mean, there were ebbs and flows of these chemicals in the atmosphere, but we are doing things that are causing these things to be out there. And if we're doing these things, that's our behavior. And the issue is our behavior. 
and therefore the solutions are things of the in the domain of leadership of how do we influence people's behavior how do we influence people's beliefs that are driving their behavior and when i come up with that increasingly what seems to me a, the big causes of of environmental problems are people believing things like if i act but no one else does then what i do doesn't matter or these big things are so big they're too much effort these small things are so small they're not worth doing or you know, other people should do this. And when they do, then I will. These beliefs tend to perpetuate people doing what they've been doing, which is what's created the situation that we have. But these are not the domain of scientists. This is not the domain of, of uh, technical innovation and things like that. Those have a role. But I think fundamentally, if it's a matter of human behavior, and that's a matter of our beliefs and the stories that we tell ourselves. You got, and, you, and you've just told a story to me that's been initial hearing is pretty convincing. Now, if you talk to folks who think about this a lot, I'm sure they'll say, well, did you think about it? Or that's good, but. And a couple of things, either that your story evolves uh, and is strengthened to answer those criticisms, or it becomes a story that doesn't make sense even to you after a while. But that, that's how you start. You tell yourself a story, build on it. And it's almost like uh, presenting a paper at an academic forum where authorities challenge your paper, and you have to go back and rewrite it to, to answer that. That's what, in effect, you're doing as you tell this story. That well, sounds like John Stuart Mill as well. And actually, you can't, you can't see it. The listeners can't see this. Behind me is a blackboard. And I don't know if you, it's probably too small for you to see on the video, but on it are the beliefs. I keep writing beliefs on every time I come up with something that, like, when I talk to people about, they keep telling me, but I can't because X. I can't because Y. Or someone else, you know, and every time I start picking up that pattern, I write it down. So I have, let's see, I have eight beliefs written there that I feel like are, those are the challenges to take on. And I also find that you said that you found my story convincing. Although what I find is that convincing doesn't really work that well because that tends to provoke argument back. I find that what helps is people behaving, trying, if I can get someone to do something that will lead them to a result that that belief would not, then they have a chance of dropping that belief. Like if they think if I act, but no one else does, then what I do doesn't matter. And I influence them to do something and, and they find, oh, this does matter. Then that belief goes away. Yes. And I, I just find that reading, writing, talking, debating, convincing, those don't seem to be effective in influencing people's behavior in this area. What I find is that here's, here's a story that, that I've come up with is that I don't, I'm not sure exactly where to start. I'll, I'm not sure if this is the best place to start, but that people like to keep doing what they're doing. And if they can present themselves with a story of why they should keep doing what they're doing, they will accept that before a belief that will get them to change their behavior. Or actually, the way I really think of it is if you put a cigarette that's lit in front of a smoker, no matter how much they're trying to quit, they're going to they're gonna feel a motivation to smoke. And if they do pick up the cigarette and put it in their mouth and, and smoke, the last thing they think before they put it in their mouth is why it's actually the best thing for them to do at this particular moment. Now, they might regret it a minute later, and they might have said beforehand they'll never let that happen. But in the moment, that, that emotional tug creates the logic. I don't want to call it I mean, it creates what feels like the logic to say, I should really do this. Or if a dieter with a gooey chocolate cake in front of them. They say, oh, I should really eat this now because then I'll eat it less later. And I feel like that's where we are with the environment. People, it's, we live in a world where 
there's a certain amount of comfort and convenience and, and traveling the world and all these things that people really like. And to try to use logic to counter comfort, convenience, pleasure, I feel like that comfort and convenience and pleasure will drive them to create the counter argument that in their minds will win. I don't know if that all made sense. But if that was true, we wouldn't have a population of former now non-smokers. We wouldn't have a population which increasingly recycles compared to 10, 20 years ago. So I think that some people are susceptible to it, but I think most people, I think they're a minority. I think more to, when I said I should be more clear, I think some people, they really want to uh, not smoke or they really want to not pollute. And given anything, they will do that. Given any motivation, they'll do that. But I think that's like a, a small percentage of the population. I think the remainder, the people that that technique would work on, it's worked on. And the remainder it doesn't work on. And that they like people know that they're polluting, but they also want to sleep at night. And so when they're falling asleep, this is loosely speaking, they tell themselves why in general, yes, pollution is bad, but this one particular time that I did it isn't so bad. Like, you know, in an, in an accident, an SUV is safer than a small car. So I'll get the, I'll get the SUV and yes, it pollutes, but in this case, that's okay because it's my children's health at stake. And so everyone thinks that way. And so everyone gets SUVs instead of everyone getting small cars, I'm kind of jumbling a, different, a bunch of different things together. I think what happens is you build in the, the direction that you want to go incrementally to reach a tipping point, a critical mass. And it's like the old dropping salt or sand until the whole mountain below, below shifts. And what happens, you, you reach a point where people who are sitting on a fence determine, hmm, I want to go on this right side because I don't like I don't like what I see on the other side. It's such a negative to the other side. But you got to get a critical mass before that happens, because certainly in terms of smoking, it's taken what almost forty years, but the but the number of smokers has decreased dramatically. Yeah, I think also with smoking, you have helping shift is people get they cough and I mean they, they cough they feel their health change. And I think that will motivate that. They'll feel it directly. And yeah, although the, the decades-long change that you're talking about, I think, is, is the big shift from when I was a kid, smoking was pretty close to Humphrey Bogart and glamour. And now I think most people, they're, they're, before they think of Humphrey Bogart, most people, I think, will think of a cancerous lung. And that's the kind of change that I think you're saying is like moving from one side of the fence to the other side, or moving from on the fence to picking a side. So the, if I'm understanding you correctly, the key is what sort of uh, negative impact of not re recycling will, will cause the same type of change in behavior? Well, what, something that's driving me is that a, a previous guest on my show, his name is Sandy Reisky. He makes giant wind and solar farms. And he gave me a statistic that said that the, what predicts people installing solar on their home is not how much money they'd save or their politics, but if their neighbors have it. And it, my takeaway from that was that community influences decisions in this area more than facts and figures and arguments and convincing. And my strategy, if, if I'm using the word correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong in using it that way, but is that at the beginning, I, was, I would bring people on the show and, and influence them try to lead them into a, a situation where they would try a new 
to share their environmental values and to act on them. And over time, especially because of Sandy's comment, I'm working more on working with people that are very renowned, that are in lots of people's communities. So, like, I mean, the Oprah is like the first name that comes to mind is someone who's in everyone's community or in very many, like everyone listening to me probably knows who I'm talking about when I say Oprah. Like there's not multiple ones out there. And I think the counter to if I act, but no one else does, then what I do doesn't matter is, oh, someone I know is doing this already. Someone in my community, someone in everyone's community is doing this. It's time for me to follow suit. Not because she's a celebrity, but because she's a member of my community. But almost all change is like that. The first time you saw a cell phone that somebody had, I remember the first time I saw an iPhone, I thought that's really neat, but I'm never going to spend the money for that. What I have is satisfactory. And then pretty soon, I'm the only one that's got an old flip phone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I tell myself, well, maybe I do need this. And I change. And look, at, look at all the things around us that come on incrementally like that. I would never have had a navigation system in my car or satellite radio, except when I went to buy a car, the, the, the one car one they had it in it. Now I can't live without it. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's what I'm saying is that over time, people begin to uh, comply with what is soon considered the norm. So not smoking is more of a, much more of a norm now than it was 40 years ago. And I think these other things that trouble you have the potential to become a norm if we can figure how to get the kind of get the first couple steps. Like I say, running the toughest uh, step is the first one out the door. So the toughest step is yeah. to get people enough of them thinking like you do that it uh, in time reaches a critical mass and folks don't want to be identified with the other side. Yeah, I'm trying to create cultural change. And whenever I say that, I think of, it's like a bumper stick, no, not a bumper, something I read in some business book or something. And it said, what did it say? Cultural change is a suicide mission. It's really hard to do, but I think more than looking for technical solutions, it's one of the reasons I'm talking to you is because I felt like focusing on the technologies and focusing on innovation, I think in some ways is is contributing to the problems, environmental problems, and focusing on the people is the way to go. And that doesn't make it easier at all, probably makes it harder. But I think cultural changes is, that's my goal. And I think that's the most important thing to work on in this area, because it's the people, not the carbon dioxide and stuff that, that results from the people, the people, it's our behavior, it's our beliefs, our norms. Have you read, do you have a copy of, the, of uh, Cultural Literacy? I don't. It's an interesting book. I just got it. I just started reading it. It's, it's a little bit dated. It's a newer edition. But uh, an author, he's, he's got two co-authors now, uh, wanted to identify what uh, actually constitutes American cultural literacy. And so they look at all these different fields and they identify terms, uh, idioms, and so forth that make up the cultural literacy, and then talk about how it changes. You might want to just take a look at it okay. uh, because, because it, in some ways it touches on what you're thinking about. Okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm partly I want to wrap up because it's, we've been on for a while, although this is, this is fascinating to me. And I really appreciate your sharing. And I feel like you look like you're just sharing like, well, this is just stuff I know. But it doesn't feel like common knowledge at all. You're 80, you're 80 years old. If you haven't kept your eyes closed and shut, shut your ears, you do learn a few things. I appreciate you sharing it. And, you know, with a lot of guests, most guests, I ask them if the environment is something that's a big deal for them. I'm not sure. Is it something that's a big deal for you? Is it something that you 
absolutely. It, it maddens me when I, you know, hear uh, folks say that it's uh, pseudoscience and, you know, it's not, it's not settled science. Well, you know, I understand what settled science is. And in, in one sense, it's not, but we know that the predominance of evidence is there. We have uh, caregivers that help with my wife. I don't get angry, but I get upset when I see that they've taken some piece of cardboard or plastic and not put it in the recycle bin, and I go fish it out and put it back. I, I try to limit the things I do that have a carbon footprint, and I, I generally think about a carbon footprint. For example, with my wife's medical condition, there's not a lot of supplies I need, and I found that uh, I'd have to go from one store to another store to another store to get sufficient quantities. And so I didn't like Amazon in terms of what I thought they were doing with uh, these trucks around. around. And then I, I said to myself, well, my carbon footprint of driving my car from four different stores could be lessened if I let them deliver a month's supply with one truck, which they're delivering to other people. So I think about it. Yeah, I'm not sure my, my logic's always right, but I'm I'm trying to make it right. Well, right off the bat, you I mean, you it's maddening. You talked about getting annoyed with the people, the caregivers. When you think of the environment, what do you think about? Uh, well, see, I, I, when you were saying this, I was reflecting on my own uh, views of it. Years ago, when my wife and I were stationed in Okinawa, Japan, if you lived in the community, you had to separate your trash into glass and plastic and paper and so forth. And we thought, who would take your, you know, this filthy trash and have to do that? That's a nonsense. Well, now it's just common, kind of common we do it. But... <clears throat> We came from thinking, boy, that's a strange Oriental custom to being what we do on an everyday basis. So it sounds like it's something that feels like with practice, it becomes normal. It's just the challenge at the beginning is sometimes you have to, hmm, I didn't think of it that way. But then if it makes sense, you act on it, it becomes normal. And I'm reading that as improving your life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so- and, and that's why I keep going back to that term critical mass. You've got to get enough people to where you tip over Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point where, you know, it's a, it's a nonlinear system and all of a sudden it gets into the cycle that you wanted in. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you as I invite a lot of guests based on what the environment means to you, what you shared, the values that you said, as I understood them, I, I invite you at your option to think of something that you haven't already, that you're not already doing that it doesn't have to be really big. It doesn't have to save the world. But something you're not already doing that makes a measurable difference. Would you be game for trying something you haven't done? You'd have to come up with it. I don't. Th- it's not going to be hard for me because that's something I'm doing all the time. Uh, one of the things I've enjoyed in retirement is working on my landscape. Now we have a whole half acre. Uh, now, if I think in terms of that half acre, in terms of the multiple square miles there are in the U.S. and around the world, what I do theoretically would have no impact. But I want to come back in a minute. But I, I'm careful what plants I select. I don't use any phosphorus on my lawn, even though it's, you know, it's a relatively small, but you're familiar with the term initial conditions. Yes. As a physicist, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I could be, I could be part of the negative initial conditions. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to stop. And I hope a lot of other folks are, you know, I'm the butterfly flapping its wings here at 161 Waterton in Williamsburg. So, so yeah, it's not, it, I will accept the challenge because it's not hard. I just have to, when I'm thinking about something, again, note it so I can tell you about it. So could we think of one in this conversation and then schedule a second conversation after you've gotten a chance to practice it a bit? Sure. Mm-hmm. So is there anything that comes to mind? Because I'm thinking about my, I have a little windowsill garden and I'm about to start planting. 
So I'm kind of curious if it would be something related to that, because then maybe I can learn from you, because I haven't gardened that much yet. Well, just like anything, I, I learned basic garden. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert, and I, I most of my plants succeed, but I have plants that uh, I pay more than I think I should pay for them, and they don't live, <clears throat> and I puzzle why, you know, what are the soil conditions, uh, and then I put in a little water garden and found they had to learn all over how you grow plants in water. So uh, it's uh, so you want me to think of something on the fly that I need to do? Yeah, that's what I'm like. Yeah, something that I mean, not that you need to do, but something that would act on your environmental values, and then to share what, then to share the, the effects, how it goes afterward. And it doesn't. Again, it doesn't have to be really big. It's not how big of an effect it is. It's it's as long as it's meeting what is meaningful to you. But probably the most meaningful thing I could do is cut down on the number of K cups I have for for my coffee. By the you know the re, are you familiar with the Keurig? Yeah, Keurig. Yeah, yeah. If I buy the reusable, or not reusable, but the ones that are uh, biodegradable instead of the plastic ones, that probably would would help. So is that something that bugs you? Because a lot of people talked about this. They're like, "Why am I doing this?" And there must be some other way of doing it. Because I love coffee, <laughs> it's convenient. <laughs> it's convenient, and I can I can change brands and change the flavor I want just at, at a whim. So, how long would it take for it to kick in? Because probably one day is probably too little, like to talk about how the experience goes. Well, it, it would take a while because it would first it would require uh, the, the first step would be buying coffee that's not in a plastic but it's in a mesh that's biodegradable. At least most of it is. So that'd be step one. Step two would be using a cup that we just put coffee in it. You don't uh, you don't have a cup. You just you buy coffee in, in bulk and then scoop and put it in there. So could we schedule a call to talk in? I don't know if that sounds like a month or several months or uh, several months. <laughs> First of all, I got to get rid of the stock I have. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, I work as slow. Yeah. After you finish this call, would you game to scheduling a second conversation? Sure. I mean, I can't give an exact date, but let's say two months. Okay, cool. And uh, I guess before wrapping up, I, I'd like to ask people if there's anything I didn't think to ask that you that's worth bringing up. I think if there's anything I would leave with them, uh, I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of moral and ethical thoughts that I could subscribe to, but maybe we'll save those for a later time. But in terms of, of practical knowledge, it's to, to truly understand how the world works. And don't think of the world as a linear system where when I do something, I will get a known effect. Recognize it's nonlinear and it's not cause and effect, but it's cumulative effects. Uh, And the mathematics on it's so vast that there's no ability to predict many times first order effects, let alone this uh, this, uh, magic of second and third order effects. It's not possible. And I usually... uh, share with them uh, a, uh, the, the math for a chess game. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or not. I know there's a lot of, I mean, there's the number of possible chess games, even after just a few moves is extraordinarily high. I mean, no one's ever played the same game twice. Uh, so that they, they know the source and it's, I've seen a number of places. Uh, there's a book on, on chess. Uh, got a metal blank now what it is. I'll send you the, the name of it. The Immortal Game. Uh, and it talks about the first chess game in a, uh, a practice game working up to the first chess tournament. And it's an interesting book in itself, but it has the, uh, the, the figures. Now you have uh, 64 squares, 32 pieces. 
when it becomes nonlinear is you have two players, each with with individual will. They can stay within the rules, but they have a lot of options of how they move. So mathematicians were asked, how many games on the board? And that means that only one move is made different in each succeeding game. Obviously, this is going to include nonsense games where you give away your, your queen or something like that. So it's every conceivable game. It's r- roughly 10 to the power of 128. So that's like number of protons in the universe. I mean, well, that's ten, that's the figures that are given is 10 to the power of 80. So it's much vastly, yeah, there's what I tell folks, there are more games on the board than there are atoms in the universe. That just boggles the mind. Mm-hmm. So, and this is what I would share there in Millennium Chomp. So you tell me that you're not just, not just a simple little chessboard with a limited number of moves on 64 squares with 32 people. You're going to apply these ideas to an economy, to a political system, to an information system, to a military system, and you're going to understand the interaction of all those subsystems, if they even existed as you as you define them. And the answer was yes. I mean, you see why I said it was pseudoscience. Um, uh-huh. So recognize the real world, not the one that you might have learned in elementary school science. Uh, it's a nonlinear one, and uh, things will happen that you could never anticipate. Well, Rip, for that last for what you've left us with at the end, but the entire conversation. Thank you very much. Okay, appreciate it. Uh, Be in touch. Rip has made a big impression on me. I don't know what it takes to make a general. Talking to him, I think it goes from, say, learning to lead teams or other functional military things to learning at a cultural level or learning deeply about people. I don't know how to put into words but I heard him talking beyond military application to the cultural and social. He talks about literature and learning systems and things like that. I think that we who want to influence human effects on the environment at a cultural, social level can learn from this experience in view. Now, I can't help also sharing that I shared a review copy of my book, Initiative, A Proven Method to Bring Your Passions to Life and Work, with Rip, and he wrote the following. And this is, I'm quoting him, writing about my book. Whether leading or following, you need to read Initiative. I have long yearned for such a book, the most clear and persuasive on personal development and leadership I've found in 60 years of adulthood. Spodek's focus on initiative and reflection matches what I found effective in serving in and leading organizations from a few people to over 15,000 Marines and sailors. He illustrates key ideas with meaningful examples and helpful practical exercises. It's lucid, succinct, easy to read, and deeply profound. It has earned a prominent place in my library. Rip's views and this review in particular meant so much to me that I featured it as the first one on the inside and in a short version on the back cover. So if you got half the value that I did from listening to Rip in this conversation and hearing his recommendation, I recommend my book. And what more can I say, but thank you, Rip. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and 
Living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.